Could you open your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 10? Now, congratulations for remembering to turn your clock forward. You're all here. You did well. You don't really have an excuse these days. Your phone does it automatically for you, so we shouldn't be, shouldn't be late. I know you missed out on an hour of sleep last night, so if you fall asleep, I understand. I'll only hold a grudge for a short period of time, I promise. Okay, Romans chapter 10 is our text for this morning. Okay, Romans 9, 10 and 11 are often misunderstood. Now, throughout church history, some have ignored it completely, believing it's an unfortunate interruption between the glorious crescendo of Romans chapter 8 and the famous commencement of chapter 12. They feel it could be placed in parentheses. It's a, a disruption of the central message, but that's not true. This is an integral part of this epistle. And it was needed because it addresses questions raised, it clarifies misconceptions, and deals with error that was being embraced by early Christians, especially those who were Jewish when it came to Israel. And Paul didn't want misconceptions about Israel to hinder or dilute one's understanding, embracing or proclamation of the gospel. And hence he addresses some of the prevalent questions and quandaries. It seems likely that these three chapters contained material that Paul was teaching regularly. This is not something new or peculiar to this epistle. But the place of Israel was a common theme in his preaching ministry. Now, Pastor Matthews made the helpful observation last Sunday that Romans chapter 9 is about God's dealings with Israel in the past. Romans chapter 10 is about God's dealings with Israel in the present. And Romans chapter 11 is about God's dealings with Israel in the future. And our focus this morning is on Romans 10, which is God's present dealings. And we could say that this is about Israel's failure, okay, their present unbelief. Okay, Israel has been set aside for a time as a nation, but the offer of salvation is still extended to them as individuals. That's the clear message of this chapter. But what's equally clear is that for the most part they have rejected the offer of salvation due to their stubborn unbelief and rebellion. But this chapter not only teaches us about Israel, it also contains practical guidelines for evangelism. Okay, the evangelizing of Israel is the focus, but there's many principles and practices to help the church and to help us as individuals to be faithful to the call of reaching the world with the gospel. Okay, this chapter offers much that will help us, by God's grace, accomplish our God-given mission. When you and I are saved, we are left here on earth and not immediately taken to heaven. Why is that the case? Have you ever thought about that? There are not many things that we can do better here on earth than we could do in heaven. 
And yet there's one obvious example, and that's reaching others with the gospel. We couldn't do that from heaven, and hence this is one of the primary reasons that we're here. All Christians, I want to stress that word all, all Christians have received a divine charge to share the gospel. Okay, please understand that this isn't restricted to missionaries, evangelists, and pastors. It's not just for church ministries or church programs to fulfill, but it's the job description of every individual Christian. But how do we do it? How do we evangelize? Romans chapter 10 offers some practical principles to equip us. And may we allow the word of God to grow our desire and to shape and sharpen our evangelism approach. And where it all starts is with a passion for it. And this is our first point, a deep desire for evangelism. If you had to describe your burden to reach the lost, what image would match the fire in your heart? Okay, a birthday candle, a small flicker, a bonfire in the backyard, or a raging bushfire. What image is the most appropriate illustration for you? Now, for the Apostle Paul, his heart was the raging bushfire. He possessed an all-consuming passion for souls to be saved. Look at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. This is similar to the commencement of the previous chapter. And the repetition perhaps reveals an arrow of accusation had been fired. Since Paul was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, some assumed that he must despise the Jews. But Paul desires to extinguish such accusations. He's already declared in Romans 9 that if possible, he would give up his own salvation if it meant Israel would be saved. And his passion is stressed again as this chapter commences. This repetition is also appropriate because it follows his teaching in the previous chapter that Israel has been set aside for a time. This was due to her disobedience and rebellion. But the apostle ensures the brethren at Rome that he does not delight in their failure. He does not rejoice in their stumbling, but rather he longs, he earnestly desires for them to be saved. Like the separated lovers who yearn to be reunited, such is the strength of Paul's desire. And it's here where it starts for us. We need a burden for the unsaved. We need a desire to reach them. Okay, this is the fuel that powers the evangelizing motor. The question is, how great is your heart's desire for people to be saved? You know, we know what the right answer is. And most of us have at least a flicker of desire. We're not completely callous. But honestly, assess your heart. Ask the Lord for his verdict. And the text actually reveals some practical indicators 
that will show us the level of our desire. The first is this, how much do you pray for the unsaved? Notice verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer. Okay, this desire is proven by prayer. Understand that you will pray for what matters most to you. So how regularly do we pray for the unsaved? Pray for those who are near and dear, for those we work with. Our social contacts, our community, our country, our world. How often are our prayers evangelistic? That's the first indicator. But not only prayer, but also preaching. Verse 14 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? That's a good question. Preacher is not just talking about someone who stands behind a pulpit like me, but it means the heralds. It means those who proclaim. And this is the task of each of us. Okay, we are all called to proclaim the gospel. Okay, and this will reveal your desire. Okay, this question. When was the last time you proclaimed the gospel? Okay, when was the last time you shared it with somebody? Okay, we can't profess a burden for the lost and never pray for them and never share the gospel with them. Yeah, that's inconsistent. So with that criteria in mind, what does that reveal about your desire? What verdict does the evidence demand? Do you possess a deep-seated passion for the lost? Now, if we, we are lacking, and if we can grow, which we all can, how do we do it? Okay, how can we grow this desire? Well, a couple of suggestions. Pray for it. Okay, ask the Lord to grow it. Ask the Lord to overcome barriers such as fear. Meditate on the gospel. Okay, saturate your mind on the, in the gospel. Be growing in your awe and captivation of Jesus. And as you are so captivated with him, you won't be able to help yourselves but to speak. Eternity. Okay, the reality of heaven, and even more so the reality of hell, okay, that ought to increase our desire and urgency. And then do it. Okay, if you never do it, not only does that reveal a lack of desire, but it will never increase if you don't do it. Ask the Lord for opportunities. You know, may the grace of God so enthrall us, so overcome us that we can't help but share the gospel. And by his grace, may we possess an ever increasing desire to reach the lost. May, may we have the heart of our God who is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, this is the starting point, a deep desire. Secondly, let's consider exposing error in evangelism. The apostles' deep desire that Israel might be saved would have offended many, especially the Jews. Imagine the Jews as they hear this being read out. It's like, Paul, are you serious? You're claiming that me, my family, and my people are not saved. That's incredibly offensive. We are the most religious people in the whole world. How dare you make such an accusation? And this seems to be what's on Paul's mind in verses 2, 3, and 4, where he identifies and confronts the error 
of Judaism. And this reveals to us an important element of evangelism, confronting error. You know, in verse 2, the apostle declares that the Jews were a very religious people. They had an unquestionable passion for God that, that could not be denied. Okay, they were filled with a religious zeal and fervor. And Paul's saying here, I know firsthand of their enthusiasm and their commitment. I've seen it with my own eyes. I see it all around me. But furthermore, he could also identify on a personal level, couldn't he? Because he was one of the most zealous prior to his conversion. His commitment, his passion was unrivaled. So he witnessed and he experienced their zeal, their commitment, and their sincerity. But notice what he says next. Their zeal was not according to knowledge. Okay, it's not enough to be zealous or to be passionate. It's the object of the zeal that matters. What or who you are zealous about is the issue. It's possible to be deeply sincere, but sincerely wrong. And that's Paul's assessment. And the root of their problem is revealed in verse 3. Okay, they rejected God's provision of righteousness in Christ, and they were trying to establish their own righteousness. That they rejected God's way and were trying to make up their own way. They felt that they were able to measure up. They assumed that I can be good enough to merit God's favor. Okay, they were zealous in climbing the spiritual ladder Believing they could elevate themselves to a place of acceptance with God. They dedicated their lives to, to building their own righteousness. They did this through meticulous law keeping. They had an intricate legalistic system. And they viewed this to be the path to God. But this was not God's way. Their problem was they refused to submit to God's righteousness. They refused to submit to God's plan of salvation and insisted on their own way. Their way was all about self-effort. It's about self-reliance. But that wasn't satisfactory. Because understand, one is not permitted to develop their own method of salvation. Okay, there is only one way to be made right before God. That's the way that he has prescribed, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So this meaning, righteousness, a right standing before God, acceptance in God's sight. That's not found at Mount Sinai, it's found at Mount Calvary. And this word end, Christ is the end of the law. It can mean fulfillment. So Christ has fulfilled the law. That's definitely true. Christ's perfect obedience has fulfilled it. Or it can mean to bring to a conclusion or a termination. Meaning Christ has abolished the law for righteousness. Now this does not mean the law has no role to play for the life of the believer. The law does reveal God's character. It does reveal God's will. We see that in the moral law. But it's not a means of pursuing 
righteousness. As one writer said, the law ends for the believer in the sense that our obedience to the law is no longer the basis for our relationship with God. To summarize it very simply, the law doesn't make us righteous. Christ makes us righteous. And this was Israel's great error, both corporately and individually. And this needed to be confronted because one cannot embrace the gospel and embrace the law simultaneously. And hence the apostle lovingly, graciously, and tenderly exposes this error. And as you and I share the gospel with others, our task is to not only point out the right way, but also identify the wrong direction that people are heading. Exposing error is a key part of evangelism. Okay, in this situation, the Jews would never embrace the gospel if they didn't first renounce their own righteousness. So they needed to see the error in their ways, which Paul is endeavoring to lovingly diagnose. Now, before someone will receive correction, they need to realize they're wrong. Before someone will take the medicine, they need to realize they are sick. And hence, exposing error is required in our evangelism. There are false beliefs that need to be confronted before one can ever embrace the truth of the gospel that we are seeking to share. Here are some examples. One may believe that they are not a sinner. One may think that they are good enough to get to heaven. Another may believe that Jesus is not God. Your friend may think it's faith in Christ plus baptism or plus some other work. A child may believe they are a Christian because mummy and daddy are Christians. One may not believe in the existence of God. And I'm sure there's more. And it will be rare that there's not some false belief needing to be exposed. And this is part of our evangelism. And relaying back to our first point, okay, we need love for the individual to do this well. Because understand, nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Do you like to be told you're wrong? I don't. And hence, we need to be compassionate in how we confront others. Because rude, arrogant, and bombastic approaches very rarely work. And if they do work, it's because God is great and he's worked despite your bad approach. Paul here sets the example for us. He's motivated by love. This exposure of error has been saturated in prayer. And he even empathizes with their situation. So this teaches us about our approach. And understand that you will often need to get someone lost before they understand they need to be found. Which is often achieved by exposing error. Thirdly, we see the essential elements of evangelism. It's important to understand what we need to include when sharing the gospel. That there are some essential elements that need to undergird our evangelism. The first is this, the scope of the gospel. There is one gospel message and it's for all mankind. The Lord does not have different methods of salvation for different people. 
There is one way and it's sufficient to save all. This is the scope of the gospel. No one is beyond its reach. Okay? It needs to be personally appropriated, but it's sufficient to save all. And that needs to be our unshakable conviction. Let's read from verse 11. It says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, twice you will notice the word whosoever. That's an all-inclusive term. Okay, the gospel is universal in its scope. Verse 11, which is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16, confirms that whoever believes will not be disappointed. And verse 13, which is a quote from Joel 2, 32, and it's harder to find a clearer expression of the universal scope of the gospel than this verse. And it's significant that this is in the Old Testament. That this is not some new invention. This is not something that Paul made up. In the Old Testament, sure, Israel were God's special people. But salvation has never been restricted to one people. And the point is driven home in verse 12. And no doubt this is particularly offensive for the Jew. Okay, they were not prepared to accept what Joel had pronounced. Not only had they misunderstood the message of salvation, that it was about faith, not works. But they also failed to grasp that it was a universal message. That it was not restricted to one people. My friend, understand there is not a different gospel for Jew and Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, that there is one and it's sufficient for all. Okay, the gospel is universal in its scope. There is no limit to the extent of the atonement. And this is an essential element in our evangelism. Because get this, whoever we come across, in whatever circumstances we come across them, the gospel is for them. Whatever their nationality, gender, status, occupation, age, the message is the same and they are not beyond its saving power. We don't have to conduct some detailed survey to determine what gospel we need to share and then hope we know that gospel. Okay, we don't have to determine whether the gospel is able to save someone, but rather we have the one message and it's able to save all and hence we should share it. Okay, that's the scope of the gospel. Next, we need to consider the source of the gospel. Verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You know, when we're seeking to share the gospel, we can do this in many different ways. We can share our testimony. We can ask a pointed question such as if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? We can provide succinct summaries of the gospel. We can engage on a relevant topic. We can share some other story. We can use varying strategies. But this is so important. The Bible is the source of the gospel. And it is the word of God that possesses power. Okay, we're told that faith comes by hearing the word of God. The Holy Spirit works through the word. So using scripture 
is essential when we evangelize. Okay, the word of God contains a power that our words do not. It possesses an authority that our stories and methods do not. So when you talk to others, use the scriptures. And that necessitates that you know the scriptures. Because it's God's ordained means that mankind be saved as the word of God is proclaimed. Okay, it's the Bible that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Not Brendan's clever words, clever methods. And you know, this also teaches us that our example, our holy life, our testimony, that's all important. But that's not enough. Okay? We need to speak. We need to share the word. We can't be silent. Okay? We need to share the scriptures because that's the source of the gospel. It's also essential to recognize the simplicity of the gospel. Now, the gospel's simplicity is unpacked in verses 5 to 8, and then it's stated clearly on several occasions in verses that follow. Okay, verses 5 and 6, they contrast the, the two types of righteousness, one through the law and one through faith. Okay, the issue with the law is that it needs to be kept perfectly. That's the point of verse 5. This contains a quote from Leviticus 18.5. And it's making the same point as James 2.10. Okay, you can keep the whole law, every single bit, but offend once and you're guilty. Therefore, one cannot be saved through the law. It demands a standard that we can't keep. But, but here's the wonderful thing about the gospel. The gospel does not demand something that we are unable to do. Okay, it doesn't include impossible things like, like keep this huge list of rules. That's the point in verses 6 and 7. And this is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses' point in that context was that God's commandments were not hidden from his people. Okay, that they didn't have to go searching for them. You know, have a massive game of hide and seek. They didn't have to go to heaven. They didn't have to cross the seas to access God's words. And Paul draws a parallel with the gospel and he's describing its availability and his simplicity. And what he's saying is that one doesn't have to go to heaven to find Jesus. We don't have to somehow bring him back down to us to be saved. We don't need to go into the grave and bring Jesus up. We don't have to shake the heights or plumb the depths in search of him. As one writer said, no heroic attempts to storm the citadel of heaven or the kingdom of the dead are needed. Okay, there are no impossible challenges to come to Christ. Okay, there's not some challenging obstacle course that we all need to complete and very few are able before we can be saved. Salvation is not some cruel taunts where it's impossible for you and I to attain, but rather it's incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple. It's all laid out for us in the Bible. Okay, that's verse 8. But I want to draw your attention to verse 13. A very succinct summary it says, Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. My friend, that's scandalously simple. 
And that's a real affront on every attempt to earn or merit our salvation. It strikes a death blow to self-efforts. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. That's the simplicity. And this can be a real stumbling block for people. What do you mean? That there's nothing I have to do. But my friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is stunningly simple. So much so that a child can understand and come to Christ. Okay, that's its simplicity. And as we share it, we need to keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Simplicity is essential in our approach. Next, let's see the substance of the gospel. What needs to be included? Okay, we'll notice in verse 9, there's a succinct summary. It mentions that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. And it also mentions belief. Okay, that's faith. And I, I want to come back to that point. But one needs to believe that Jesus is Lord. It seems that this is probably an early Christian creed. And very simply, it's believing that Jesus is God. It's believing that he is Jehovah of the Old Testament. And this is non-negotiable. It's believing in the incarnation. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. If one does not believe that Jesus is God, then you're not a Christian. This is a requirement in our gospel presentation. We need to present Jesus as God. This is about who he is. If Jesus isn't God... He's not the savior. And one must also have faith in what Jesus has done. Okay, so faith in who he is and faith in what he's done. Again, verse 9, it mentions the resurrection specifically. One must believe that Jesus rose bodily and literally from the grave. That is non-negotiable. Okay, you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. But understand the resurrection implies other realities, such as the death of Christ. Christ didn't die, there wouldn't be a resurrection. Then it raises another question, what necessitated that death? It was the sin of mankind. This is all included in the idea of resurrection. So to summarize, the substance of the gospel that we share is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, The fact that Jesus is God. And he became a man. He lived the perfect life that we never could. Fulfilled the law perfectly. He died on the cross for sin. Paying the penalty in our place. And on the third day he arose again. Which proves his person. And acceptance of the work of salvation. Okay, That's the substance of the gospel. It's this that we need to share. And the last essential element is the sincerity of the profession. The sincerity of the profession. Okay, verses 9 and 10, they seem to be parallels. And both verses mention the heart. And this is such an important point. One is not saved by merely giving mental assent to the gospel. It's not just knowing the facts of the gospel. It's so much more than head knowledge. It requires personal appropriation. That's the essence of faith. It's personal trust and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, one can say the right things, but it's personal appropriation that saves an individual. 
And the text tells us that genuine faith will be proven by confession. Okay, one will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Understand, this confession is not a condition of salvation, but it's an inevitable outward expression. Okay, when you have fire, you will have light and warmth. It's the idea. If you are a Christian, you will confess with your mouth. Okay, when one really believes something, they will share it with others. Okay, the gospel is too glorious to keep secrets. But it's vital to understand that one must personally appropriate. Academic knowledge doesn't say. So there are some elements to govern our evangelism. We need to remember the scope, the source, the simplicity, the substance and sincerity. These five things are essential in our evangelism. And fourthly, let's consider dismissive dispositions. Now, as we seek to be faithful and share the gospel, something that's very disheartening is that not everybody will respond positively. In fact, a lot won't. So how do we process this? Well, notice in verse 16, Paul again, he quotes from Isaiah, who hath believed our report. And this is actually from the very famous chapter, Isaiah 53. And here he says that despite the universal proclamation of the gospel, okay, this is spoken of in, in verse 15, and the idea in context being wherever there were Jews, the gospel had reached them, and yet they had not responded to it. Okay, and that's a great shame. Okay, and, and this continues. So many reject the gospel. And Paul offers some potential reasons for Jewish rejection. The first is in verse 18. Perhaps they haven't heard. Maybe they haven't had the opportunity. Nobody has shared it with them. But this was dismissed. He quotes from Psalm 19.4. The Jews had certainly heard Okay, so that excuse is gone. He moves to the next possibility in verse 19. Perhaps they didn't understand. They heard, but they didn't comprehend. But this too is dismissed. Again, scripture is quoted, Deuteronomy 32, 21. And the argument seems to be, if the Gentiles could comprehend and embrace the gospel, then surely the Jews, okay, that the spiritual folk are without excuse. And hence, the only logical explanation is revealed in verses 20 and 21. Israel's rejection had nothing to do with lack of availability or ability to understand, but they chose to reject it. That they continued in disobedience, choosing their own method of salvation and rejecting God's. And the image in verse 21 is of a loving parent with their arms open, waiting for their rebellious child to come home. God's arms are open, but Israel were not willing to come. And this provides us with three checkpoints when it comes to people's rejection of the gospel. Okay, is it because they have not heard? Okay, no one has ever shared the gospel with them. Okay, and that's becoming more and more prevalent in our society. Well, we can do something about that in a lot of situations, can't we? What's the solution? Share the gospel with them. 
Then there's lack of understanding. Some may hear, but not comprehend. And again, this is something that we can control. Was our gospel presentation clear? Okay, we should work very hard at clarity. Ask if there's questions. But most of the time, people have heard. People have understood. But they've chosen to reject. And that one is outside of our control. That one's not our fault. All we can do is pray. So this provides us with an assessment as to why somebody may reject the gospel. Okay? And this is not always easy for us. Okay? It should hurt us when others reject the gospel, particularly when they're close to us. But we need to endeavor to determine what category one fits into, because that will govern our future approaches. So this text is about Israel primarily. It's about God's present dealings with them and that so many individuals are rejecting the gospel. And yet it has much to teach us about sharing the gospel. And, you know, my friend, our responsibility, it doesn't stop at accepting the gospel. We now have a responsibility to share the gospel. Hey, Paul asks a question. How were they here without a preacher? I asked that same question this morning. Okay, how, how will they hear if we don't tell them? How will they understand if we don't explain it? How, how can we, the unworthy beneficiaries of the gospel, that those who have received infinite blessings from God, completely undeserved, how can we keep that to ourselves? We have a divine duty to share the gospel. This, this is Jesus' mission for individual Christians. And this is one of the most worthwhile things that we can do. Okay, notice the outline in front of you. It's an acronym and it spells DEED. D-E-E-D. -E -E and this is one of the most loving and caring deeds that we can do. Share the gospel. And everyone can do it. And this text provides the strategy. But a strategy does nothing unless it's implemented. And here are some practical ways that you can implement this strategy. Okay, that you can be faithful in reaching others with the gospel. Now I want you to understand that this list is not, you know, I can choose a couple and ignore the rest. Okay, but we need to be doing most of them. Number one, and I'll work through these really, really quickly. Number one, have unsaved friends. Relational evangelism is the most effective. You need to have meaningful relationships with unsaved people. Number two, give out tracts, whether this is personally or through letterboxing. Okay, very soon we will have church flyers ready to be distributed. Get involved. Number three, give to missions. You can assist others financially to reach the unreached. Number four, pray for the unsaved. Okay, pray for those that you know and love that they would come to Christ. Pray that our church would reach others. Pray that other churches, other Christians and missionaries would reach others. 
Number five, read the Bible with a friend. Okay, invite an unsaved friend to read the Bible with you. Go through the book of Mark and look at Jesus. Number six, live out your faith. Make sure your life is a positive advertisement for the gospel. Number seven, be intentional. Look for ways that you can get a conversation back to Jesus and the gospel. Number eight, ask God for opportunities. Pray every day that the Lord would open a door of opportunity for you to share the gospel. That's the type of prayer that he loves to answer. Number nine, serve in our church's ministries. We strive to share the gospel in all that we do. And this is especially true in our children and youth ministries. If you want opportunities to share the gospel, get involved in our ministries. Number 10, invite people to church. Okay, at church, the gospel will be heard. And the gospel should be visible in how we relate to and treat each other. Okay, people should hear the gospel and they should see it lived out in front of them. Christmas time will be here soon. Invite your friends and your family to our special functions. Number 11, hospitality. Invite unsafe people into your home. Did you know biblical hospitality is actually primarily focused on the unsaved? When was the last time you had some unsaved folk into your home? And number 12 uh, is go. It's go. Now, would you be willing to be a pastor, to be an evangelist, or to be a missionary? Would you be willing to surrender your life to full-time Ministry, My friend, there are so many needs and they are growing by the day and there are so few laborers. And as a church, we would love to train, send and partner with pastors, evangelists and missionaries. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing? Because how will they hear without a preacher? You know, we have all been entrusted with the mission of sharing the gospel. This is Jesus' charge to us. This is our responsibility, but it's also a wonderful privilege. What, what a privilege to hold forth the word of life. And may we, with God's help this week, be purposeful and deliberate in sharing the gospel. Because how are they here if we don't tell them? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us. And Lord, I do pray that you would work uh, deeply uh, in our hearts. Uh, infuse a, a burning desire for souls to come to Christ as Savior. Lord, give us opportunities uh, this week. You know, help us to apply uh, that which your word has revealed to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.